0: Maintaining a society that is safe, equitable, and equal for everyone is becoming more and more of a core issue with corporations.
1: Everything I I work for every day is precisely to ensure that society continues to function and even thrive despite shocks. We should adopt
0: a mentality of what if it happens here?
2: Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Risk Opportunity, a series brought to you by Bloomberg Media Studios and Zurich Insurance Group. I'm Danny Hewson, a financial analyst and broadcaster with more than 20 years' experience covering business and finance. Countries around the world are committed to the Paris Agreement, which aims to limit global warming to two degrees Celsius or less. But our survival doesn't just depend on reducing emissions. What's essential is learning how to adapt and become more resilient to climate change. In this episode of The Risk Opportunity, we'll hear from experts like Dr David Lalmont, who's worked with the likes of Stanford University and the World Bank to develop models to better understand and reduce disaster risk. And Amar Rahman, Zurich Insurance's Global Head of Climate Resilience for Zurich Resilience Solutions. Amar, welcome to The Risk Opportunity. We're going to be talking a lot about resilience when it comes to climate change in this episode. So could you just define resilience for us?
0: Depending on who you ask, uh, resilience could have many meanings. But fundamentally, it's an ability of an organization, of a society, of individuals to withstand any impact that comes and disrupts their day-to-day operations or way of life it's also their ability to learn from these events and to improve and be prepared for the next event that could potentially impact them.
2: How important is it that businesses are part of this, that they adapt for a changing world?
0: It's crucial. You can't separate a business from the society or the community at which it operates. So we talk about a dynamic risk landscape. Every day you turn on the news and you see something else happening. Companies and societies need to work together to mitigate the impact of these events that are not only increasing in severity and frequency, but interacting with each other in different ways.
2: Well, thanks so much for setting the scene for us. We're now going to have a listen to what David Laumont had to say. So David, you're in Singapore, you're just back from Indonesia. I imagine that you do an awful lot of travel. What has been the most impressive place that you have been to and where do you think that you have made the most difference in terms of mitigating risk?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. So a lot of the work that I do is on natural hazards and their impacts on communities. So I study earthquakes and uh, typhoons and floods. You know, most of my work now is focused perhaps more on how to prevent these events, how to build our resilience for those events. But a lot of that is informed actually by uh, work and research in post-disaster settings and post-disaster crises, which is, you know, fundamentally what we're trying to avoid. But in fact, I've been quite active in, in that space and it's always a source of learning and uh, an inspiration for a lot of work that I do.
2: Yeah, I guess you have to go there in order to to see what happens, in order to learn from it. But you must have seen some terrible things in your time.
1: Yeah. So unfortunately, uh, witnessing the, the impacts of these uh, catastrophe events on communities is, you know, it's very troubling. Uh, I spent two years working in Haiti after the earthquake. Clearly that that event was absolutely horrifying and the number of people and communities and the entire city, the entire country was deeply affected. Part of the experience of being and working in these places, obviously, is witnessing the horrible consequences that these events have on communities. One of the more uplifting things though that, that we see as well is that the communities impacted by, by these uh, events demonstrate, you know, overwhelmingly pro-social behaviour. So I think while there's always a lot of talk about violence and looting and things like that following these catastrophes, you know, all the research, all evidence, and certainly all my experience demonstrates that that doesn't happen. And when it does, it's extremely rare. Communities come together in amazing ways to support each other.
2: The work that you do is to mitigate risk, to prevent these kind of things from happening. How do you go about that?
1: So managing risk starts really from understanding the risk. One of the things that we really kind of stress in our work is that um, risk is the combination of three things, the hazard, the exposure, and the vulnerability. And you need all three to create risk. So hazard really describes the physical, natural, environmental process. So that could be the earthquake, that could be the flood, that could be the typhoon, the drought. Then you also need exposure, and that describes really the the built environment or the people or the infrastructure that is potentially impacted by these hazardous events. And then vulnerability, and and vulnerability describes really the propensity of that exposure to suffer impact or loss or damage or, or some kind of consequence from these hazards. And when you recognize that those are the three things that are needed to create risk. Um, that's quite empowering because then you also realize the breadth of tools that you have to try to mitigate these. You can try to put together water retention systems to reduce flooding in in various communities. You can control exposure through smart uh, city planning and better kind of guided development practices to avoid people building in in hazard prone areas to begin with. Or very importantly, you can also address the vulnerability and that can be done through physical uh, strengthening of infrastructure, or you can reduce uh, community vulnerability through various means as well.
2: So there's an awful lot of work that's going on at the moment to make these communities more resilient, communities that are impacted by these disasters. We don't tend to hear about the good stuff. We don't tend to hear when a tragedy has been prevented. Do we need to hear more of that?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's really interesting working in this space of of disaster risk management because the, the overwhelming focus is always on the catastrophe and the destruction The number of buildings destroyed and and so forth. But the whole goal of disaster risk management, uh, everything I I work for every day is precisely to ensure that society continues to function um, and even thrive despite shocks. So in short, it's it's to ensure that nothing happens. And this creates a, a dilemma because, you know, by definition, you don't see nothing happening no one notices or hears about the, the typhoon that impacted no one or the, you know, the earthquake that, that shook houses, but none of them were damaged or collapsed.
2: Is that why you created the Averted Disaster award? why you're part of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we created the, the Verted Disaster Award to address this exact issue to highlight, celebrate successes in risk reduction so that these lessons could be shared more broadly and, and replicated elsewhere.
2: I would imagine you use a whole load of data in order to deal with this, to, to generate some of the ideas, to mitigate risk. Just talk us through how you use the data
1: yeah, so, you know, it's very exciting, uh, just the sheer kind of amount of data uh, that is increasingly available to conduct very complex analyses on uh, climate and disaster risk. Remote sensing produces so much data at higher resolution than ever before. It's still computationally very challenging to transform that into proper information. But you know, we've been working on uh, global scale models of climate risk and we're running millions of simulations of potentially damaging events. Part of what we might generate are are wind maps and and flood maps, but that's still one step removed from what's truly useful, which is, you know, what are the impacts of these events on on communities? What are the cost implications?
2: Are there any technologies in the field that you're particularly excited about beyond that sort of data modeling?
1: Perhaps what's been the most exciting when it comes to technologies, at least in my field, is more the the coverage that we have now. You know there are some places where we've had good data for a long time, places in, in, in Europe and North America, Australia. What's exciting though, is that there's a lot more data now coming from the rest of the world. Where we critically need this information, because I think the, the stakes when it comes to climate and disaster risk are, are huge in Asia, in Africa, Latin America, in a lot of the world that has historically not had very good coverage when it comes to data.
2: Why is that? Why are we getting more data?
1: So remote sensing has been really helpful. You know, we can now use remote sensing to get much more accurate digital elevation models, for instance, we can deploy these technologies at a much greater scale and covering every region of the world. So that's been a big, big one. But perhaps the other one is, you know, there are these institutions, such as the, the World Bank, where, where I've worked in for, for a while, that have been very active in working with governments to collect more data, to collect better data. They've been very active in kind of open data programs as well. So the data is is also accessible to researchers and, and users, both locally and globally, to turn that into useful information. Um, and I think that's had a really big impact.
2: When you look at risk management, when you think about resilience and the lessons that we are learning, are you hopeful about the next 10 years?
1: yes i am very much an optimist when it comes to the the ability of communities to to build resilience in the future i think in large part because i'm excited about what these resilient communities will be i think these will be fundamentally nice places to live in i think a a lot of the discussions around resilience is also about equity because we have witnessed time and time again The impacts of disasters are are deeply unequal. You know, building resilience also means tackling inequity. But those are good things to do regardless of climate and and disaster extremes. So I think the fact that we are taking very seriously these goals of building resilience is very exciting because I think what will come out of it are places that will be better for everyone.
2: David, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Some incredible insights from David there, Amar. I think I was really struck by his passion and the fact that he has experienced the worst possible time for communities. And he's then gone in and used those insights that he's got from those times to really make a difference, to try and prevent those kind of crises from happening.
0: I I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's a very important thread through what David said, and that's education. Our Preparedness to implement any measures, whether on the adaptation side or mitigation, which means protecting ourselves from the environment and protecting the environment from our activities. Our readiness to implement these measures depend a lot on our level of awareness, what we call our risk appetite, our risk tolerance. So education plays a a very important role in sensitizing communities, sensitizing corporations about the potential consequences and encouraging them to act.
2: Do you think it's harder when many of us in the Western world only see these disasters on the television, on news bulletins? Do you think it's harder to get people engaged, to get people prepared to engage?
0: Yes, there is an element of it can't happen here. But what we're noticing, droughts, heat waves, cold snaps, uh, events that we normally historically haven't seen in our lifetimes are taking place, they are happening. So preparedness is key. We should adopt a mentality of what if it happens here? It's never happened before, but what if it happens here? What do I need to do to prepare?
2: And on that note, I think it's clear that insurers do have a role in helping both companies and societies adapt. What do you think that role is?
0: Risk management is part of our DNA. Right, so a key component in preparedness is assessing, quantifying, and treating risks. And that is our core activity. The role that we're playing in solving this problem is bringing our data, bringing our expertise, bringing our tools to, as I mentioned, assess, quantify, and solve the problem. But also as a hub, as a knowledge hub, bringing together academia, bringing together our customers, bringing together government officials, regulators, and having a discussion. And we start with the basics. What is your definition of risk? What is it that you don't want to happen? And how do we solve that problem? Corporations are not isolated from the communities that they operate in. So maintaining a society that is safe, equitable, and equal for everyone is becoming more and more of a core issue with corporations.
2: So in terms of robust climate resilience, then what should we be looking for?
0: The elements of a robust climate, Resilience plan or resilience strategy has to include multiple elements, elements around the protection mechanisms of the individuals. And that's the buildings. So you need to create buildings that are safe for the inhabitants that are low emission, that are, that are comfortable uh, to live in. And then you need to look beyond that, look at the infrastructure, look at the utilities, everything that supports the functioning of a society is prepared for the changes that we're seeing take heat as an example. Increasing temperatures, and we're seeing that more and more in different parts of the world in areas that typically don't sustain Heat waves, for example, uh, above the Arctic Circle. But what is the impact of heat? It could be on people, and it could be on the equipment uh, that are essential to keeping society, but also corporations running. So the impact of on people is obvious, that it affects their health, they need to reduce the working hours, hydrate more, but the impact on the infrastructure is more complicated.
2: David was talking about the fact that We don't publicize when things haven't happened because strategies have been put in place to prevent them. And unless we're celebrating those achievements, again, that's an opportunity lost.
0: Exactly. I agree with him totally. You need to show how effective these investments were in protecting societies. That is crucial. I think something that would also be very helpful is to communicate in a less scientific way. Make it more tangible.
2: So we're just talking about the the need to simplify the message. And I want to ask you about data, which can be incredibly complicated, but clearly plays a huge part in managing risk-informed decisions.
0: Absolutely. So the best way to use data is to use it in a way that reinforces the message that you're trying to communicate, which is what is the risk? Even though technology is, getting, is advancing at an incredible pace and we have this volume of data, we also need to bear in mind that there's a certain level of uncertainty behind the data. Data is not predictive. You should use it in a way that communicates the scenarios that could happen. What if, right? So I come back to uh, simplifying the message. We develop stories using data around what could happen under the different climate change scenarios. The key point here is that the data that we use needs to reflect every aspect of the risk. So not only how the hazard is going to change with time, but also the exposure. And by that, I mean the values at risk, the people at risk, and so on, and also the quality of the protection mechanisms in place. How is the building or flood protection mechanism or whatever, how's that going to perform with aging?
2: We've been talking about data, but clearly technology also has a massive part to play. And David was talking about the power of remote sensing, something that he's incredibly excited about. Just thinking about technological advances, what are you excited about?
0: Well, it's not only the accuracy of these sensors, it's also the fact that they've become so cheap. So you could deploy them at a very dense level throughout communities. And what these sensors would do, they pick up a measure, everything from temperature within a building to energy consumption, to water consumption, as well as wind temperature, what's happening inside or outside the building. So rainfall levels, wind uh, wind speeds, and so on and so forth. So with that increased volume of more accurate data that gives us more confidence in the assessments that we're making.
2: Zürich Resilience Solutions clearly plays a massive part in mitigating some of these risks, helping clients deal with the challenges. Just explain a bit about what it does.
0: Zürich Resilience Solutions, we're basically a, a global team of experts. We are specialized in risk assessments in different industries, having come from those industries ourselves. We support not only the underwriting function in a more granular view of the risk to help them provide the right coverage for our customers. But we also help our customers in developing solutions around the risks that we identify.
2: So you're always learning.
0: Absolutely. We, we are constantly learning from each other. And every day you come to work and you're excited about, okay, what am I going to learn today? Yeah, what kind of conversation I'm going to have that's going to teach me something new? And that's something very gratifying in the work that we do.
2: What I've really enjoyed about talking to both you and David is your Optimism. This is an incredibly daunting subject for a lot of people. There's a lot of concern, very rightly. What do you think it's going to take for us to reach the Paris Agreement target?
0: Now, one thing the individuals that we talk to is make them aware of their power as voters, as consumers, as employees demanding action. And no action is too small. Everyone working together will create momentum to solve the problem and that that gives me optimism i think that that momentum that we're seeing will help achieve the paris agreement because it's up to us to make this happen we shouldn't be relying on our governments if we see society not changing at a fast enough pace we have the power to change it and we see that in talking to people that everyone wants to do their bit
2: there is no plan b
0: no planet b either
2: Um, Amar, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you, Danny. It's a pleasure talking to you too.
2: I think what I've been really struck by the most in my conversations with both David and Amar is the huge amount of optimism that both men have about our ability to deal with climate change and become more resilient to manage risk. It's just been incredible hearing their experiences. And yeah, absolutely, the the optimism, because I think it's so easy to get lost in all of this and to feel that it is hopeless. Thank you for listening to The Risk Opportunity. In the next episode, we'll be discussing Zurich's Net Zero transition paper, drawing on the experiences of companies in key markets around the world. We'll explore the challenges and opportunities they face in the all-important race for Net Zero and offer some helpful recommendations. In the meantime, please do follow, rate and review the podcast. It really does help others find it. The Risk Opportunity was brought to you by Bloomberg Media Studios and Zurich Insurance. Head to zurich.com forward slash global risks to discover more about risk resilience and download the latest global risks report.